Welcome to the True Voice Podcast with your host, LaShawn Smith. Hey, welcome to True Voice, where we learn more about today through stories from amazing people. This is season three. I'm your host, LaShawn Smith. Here on True Voice, we talk with people who have remarkable stories that entertain, teach, and offer a human perspective on how today's most pressing topics remain deeply connected to our past. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with James Donaldson. James, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sean. It's great to see you. And uh, I know you can't see me, but we're doing the audio piece. But great to see you and great to meet you. Yeah, pleasure. We'll um, get into and uh, spend a fair amount of time on this organization that you're growing. But, you know, we always like to start with the personal story. And so we're going to go way back. Uh, I want to hear more about, you know, where were you born and uh, hit on a couple of your, you know, pivotal childhood experiences. So I believe you're born in the UK. Tell me more about that. I was, yes. You're taking me way back now, uh, <laughs> 63 years ago. Uh-huh. You know, I'm an Air Force brat. My father was in the Air Force for 20 years, and he was stationed in the UK during that time that I was born. I came back to the States just you know, barely two years old, so I don't remember anything about the UK. And from there, we went to Travis Air Force Base out in the Bay Area of California and grew up uh, there for a few years before he retired out of the military and moved the family over to Sacramento, California, where I grew up there from the third grade on until leaving Sacramento after high school graduation and on to Washington State University on an athletic scholarship to play basketball and be a student athlete and all those great things, graduating from WSU, Washington State University in 1979. So that's what brought me to the Northwest. Fantastic. Now, before we uh, get back to that point, just one question, you know, growing up on an Air Force base, what was that like? Well, you know, I remember, you know, the bases, the bungalows, the PX, all those things, you know. Moms used to, uh, you know, fill up the station wagon. We all go down there once a week and and just load that station wagon up with food and things from the commissary. My dad was, uh, you know, very busy with his military career, but he was always good about, you know, being home at dinner time, making sure that, you know, we were all disciplined and doing what we're supposed to do, of course. And uh, I, I was fortunate that both of my parents were, were there throughout all my growing up years, well into my 30s. And so that's, uh, I think, quite a stable beginning for me. But growing up on the base, yeah, I remember, you know, a lot of the kids from the base uh, growing up with them on the playgrounds and things. But remember, I was just five, six, seven years old before moving to Sacramento when I was eight years old. Right, right. No, that's, uh, yeah, it's always interesting, you know, for folks, uh, you know, uh, my dad was in military as well, so moved around a fair amount. And I think uh, when you do move around from place to place, you have to kind of reestablish your social patterns. And, and some folks do great with that and other folks really struggle. So I'm always interested to hear how uh, others have navigated that in their journey. So uh, mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. So, yeah. so what did you spend your time on in your 20s? Well, in my 20s, I was uh, just graduating from Washington State University. I was fortunate enough to be drafted by the NBA. So all through my 20s and most of my 30s, I was playing professional basketball in the NBA for 14 years and then overseas in Europe for six more years on top of that. So from 21 until about age 42, I was running up, running up and down the hardwood. 
<laughs> Indeed. You know, as you think about your, you know, the discipline or other things that your parents instilled into you, what do you think uh, are some of the key takeaways that helped you be successful with your career in basketball? Well, it prepared me very well for coaches who were disciplinarians as well. I think that was really a big part of my success in being a professional athlete was that I had coaches who were very much reminding me of my father, who was very structured, very disciplined, you know, that military background training. I went to Washington State University with a uh, wonderful African-American coach named George Raveling, who recruited me from Sacramento. And George was, you know, had kind of become my second father figure. My dad was still in Sacramento, you know, taking care of the rest of the family. I took off, went north, and George put me under his wing. And I give him so much credit for really molding and shaping me to the young man that I became and that I was throughout my 20s, 30s, and 40s. And even to this day, George is in his mid-80s now, and we are still dear friends. And he's still a great mentor, and he's still still coaching me in a way. So it was great to have that. That's great. It's fantastic. Were there any things uh, along that journey, whether it was on or off the court, that became kind of key things you had to tackle to be the best version of yourself? Well, I think growing up, I wasn't a natural athlete, just, you know, coming into this world driven on basketball. No, I was far from that. I, um, my father, even though he looked very athletic, about, you know, 6'3", 230 pounds, you know, sculptured, doing his sit-ups and push-ups every morning I could remember. He looked like a great athlete, but he wasn't into athletics. He just, and he didn't allow us really to get into it that much either. He wanted us to, uh, you know, to be, be well-educated, to be schooled. And so that's really what my focus was, being a really good student all through my growing up years. And so when I became an athlete, it wasn't until my last year in high school that I actually seriously started playing basketball and actually was on the basketball team. And, you know, good enough and filled with enough potential where a handful of universities were taking a look at me and saying, wow, James has the work ethic. He, he's coachable. He's willing to listen. And that's why George Raveling took a flyer on me, took a shot at me, because he knew I was that kind of kid. And I was. I lacked confidence in the athletic abilities that I had hidden deep inside of me. But George Raveling saw that I had some potential. And he said, hey, James, I just want you to come up here to Washington State. You're going to sit the bench the first couple of years, my freshman and sophomore year. I hardly played at all. Maybe, you know, 20, 30, 40 seconds at the end of a game when you're up by 20 points or down by 20 points and you can't do any harm, right? <laughs> so that, that was my, my basketball existence the first couple of years. But in, during that time, I was in the weight room. I was putting on muscle. I was getting stronger, bigger, faster. I was running the stadium stairs. I was out there with the track team, running with the track team, working on my agility, running through tires and ropes and all those kind of things. So I wasn't very athletic when I began, but I became very, very athletic as, as the early days progress along. And my confidence grew as well. And by the time I was a junior at Washington State University, I was a full-fledged, full-blown student athlete, ready to tackle the world, and had 
two very, very good years as a junior and senior at Washington State, good enough to be noticed by the NBA. No, I love it. So you go through this successful career as a professional athlete, and I think a, a number of pro athletes uh, come to this decision point when it's time to retire from that portion of your career. What's going through your head and, and what options are you considering? Well, you know, during my NBA career, right kind of in the, at the uh, kind of at the middle, uh, just past the middle part of my career, I was about 32 years old. I had a devastating knee injury, a ruptured patella tendon in my right knee. And anybody knows anything about physiology and all those things, that's your breaking mechanism and your jumping mechanism, that patella tendon. And without it, you just can't do it. Mine was a complete rupture and um, miracle of miracles, the doctors were able to uh, operate on me and put it back together significantly enough. The rest was really up to me to rehab it and work hard at getting it stronger, being able to take the rigors of running up down the basketball court. So that was when I was 32 years old. It knocked me out of an NBA season for about eight months. But during that time, I was in physical therapy four or five times a a week, and a light bulb moment kind of went off in my head saying, wow, the docs are very doubtful if I can come back and play again. Everyone's doubting if I can come back and play again. And I thought at that moment that if I can't come back and play basketball, what am I going to do? I had a college degree. I sociology and psychology, fully anticipating going into the teaching, counseling world of things. But I thought, wow, I'm enjoying this physical therapy experience very, very much with working with physical therapists and orthopedic doctors, athletic trainers, nutritionalists, everybody putting me back together again. It was kind of like, kind of like putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, And I thought, I said, wow, you know, if I can't play basketball, I want to establish a physical therapy business and help people out in these very, very difficult traumatic times that they go through as well. Whether it's surgery or an automobile accident or just getting older and weaker and losing your balance, that's what physical therapy does. So this was back in 1988, I got injured. 1989, I started up my business called the Donaldson Clinic which ran for 28 years until 2018. And we had up to five locations at one point providing excellent physical therapy to the communities that we were in. And I just loved it. I I never did become a licensed physical therapist because at the point I finally retired 10 years later from basketball, I decided to go ahead and run the business instead of becoming a therapist. That was my initial thought was I was going to become a therapist as well. And so I had a, a, a career already worked out and laid out for me to transition into after basketball was over. And I didn't know how long I'd play, but I played until I was 42 years old. So it was another 10 years. The, the, I was home during the off season, three or four months every year, working in the business, learning the industry, meeting all the doctors, marketing the business and all those kind of things. And then I'd take off again for another eight months and play basketball. So by the time I finally retired, I had something to transition into, which is something that 90% of the guys who play sports don't have 
something to transition into very easily. So mine was already set for me because of my, my adverse situation of a terrible knee injury, which caused me to think and rethink things about what I was going to do. Yeah, no, it's uh, great to have that foresight. Now, let's uh, move through this journey where you're you're now post pro athlete or athletic career. You are running this business. I know a few years ago, there's uh, you know some some changes start start happening around that kind of shaped or made you rethink your life. Tell me more about that, and uh, we want to tie that into this new organization that you started. Right, you know, my life was going really well. I think until I was about 57 years old, 2015. And, um, you know, I was in great shape. I, I continued my training, my workouts, my nutritional habits as an athlete, running three or four days a week, three or four miles at a time, downtown Seattle, in the weight room, training two hours a day, five, six days a week. So I was in excellent condition for a 57-year-old who had a lot of mileage on my knees and my backs and my hips and everything else. Mm -hmm. But everything held up very well. And I was out trying to play golf one morning in January 2015 um, and had no symptoms of anything except when I got to the golf course, I felt a little bit nauseous and my back was killing me. I'm sweating profusely and we hadn't even teed off yet. So I told the guys, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling too good today. I'm going to go and see my doctor and see what's going on with me. So I remember driving over 15 minutes away or so to my doctor's office. And I remember vaguely seeing his reception counter at the lobby of his office and everything went black. Boom, wow. right there. Yeah. And they tell me I fell out right there in the lobby. The doctors came and did a quick diagnostic scan on me and determined it was my heart that Hmm. was really having a big, big problem. I was suffering from an aortic dissection, which is, uh, you know, the aorta is that big, huge vessel that comes off your heart. Uh, You got one on the top of your heart, one on the bottom. The one on the top was just hanging on by a thread. A thin membrane was connecting it still. And if it had burst, you get about six or eight more heartbeats, and that's it. You you just bleed out on the spot. Nothing Goodness. can save you. Nothing yeah. can save you. So here I am. I fell out in the doctor's office. They determined it was my heart. They threw me in the ambulance, and I woke up two weeks later after a 12-hour emergency open-heart surgery, five days in a medically-induced coma, and woke up having no idea where I was or what happened to me. And, you know, that was the first of four major surgeries over the next five years. That was the ascending aorta, the top one. Then I had the descending aorta done the second year, about a year later. Then I had a arterial bypass uh, that backfired, and I had a huge infection for six months fighting that off. Then I had a partially paralyzed right lung from the surgeries and things. Uh, They nicked a nerve or something happened to my lung. So these things, after being such a top flight athlete all my life and really being on top of myself physically, started working on me mentally. I was no longer able to do, you know, a fraction of what I used to do. I couldn't walk up a flight of stairs without hanging on the handrail. I couldn't walk across the parking lot without having to stop and take a breather. 
that was the, the beginning of my downward spiral into this um, episode of depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideations. So this all began in 2015. 2016, my mother passed away. My wife walked out on our marriage and took her son with her, my stepson, just out of the blue, no note, no message. They, they just left when I was out of town for a weekend. My business, because I wasn't behind the wheel every day like I had been for all those years, was started you know, going sideways a little bit, even though I had a management team managing things for me, it's not the same thing as having the owner there directing things. So we started having some financial challenges. I threw every penny of my NBA life savings into my business, trying to save it. And uh, I had 25 employees I felt very obligated to, very responsible for, and I kept it going as long as I possibly could. And this I finally closed the business in 2018, and that began really the downward spiral. 2018 was 12 months of pure hell, of darkness and depression and hopelessness. And, it, you know, entering into all that, I knew something was wrong. Some, I just wasn't myself, and I made a call to my family doctor to get a, an appointment with him because I wasn't sleeping through the night. And mm-hmm. uh, I thought he was just going to prescribe me some sleeping medication and uh, everything would be fine. You know, fortunately, he was the kind of doctor that was very inquisitive, very compassionate. He asked me a lot of questions. And just like I'm laying out for you, I laid out for him. And he said, wow, James, you are suffering from anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideations. Uh, you you are making plans to end your life. And that wow. is not that is not good. And um so he put me on prescription medications for about six months. He assigned a behavior health counselor to me. And a few weeks, months after that, I, I myself reached out to a small intimate group of friends who had known me for 30, 40 years. A couple of my old basketball coaches, uh, George Raveling was one of them. Coach Lenny Wilkins with the Seattle Supersonics was one of them. He was my Seattle my sonic coach mm-hmm. and these two guys these two guys in their 80s at the time were right there for me like a pair of crutches helping me get through this uh, mm. i remember george raveling telling me hey you know I, I knew you back in high school and i put so much work into you and you put so much work into you and i'm not gonna let you throw it away james mm. and it you know, so to have people like that in your life, absolutely, that call you out on it and say, "Hey, we're not giving up. Help me to get through that." Yeah. So that after twelve months of total darkness, the darkness finally started lifting up a little bit. I had lost all reason to live. I had, I had no hope. There was no tomorrow to look forward to. Hmm. But that that darkness started lifting a little bit, and I realized then that that, uh, I did have a reason to be here still. There was a reason I made it through this very, very difficult path. I'm a Christian man, religious man, and I know God brought me through. Even when it was the darkest and the darkest, the loneliest and the loneliest, 
God was right there with me, you know, mm-hmm. and he, he saw me through. And he gave me that vision. He said, James, we've made it through this, and you need to get out and use your platform to speak and be an advocate for mental health awareness and suicide prevention. You've been there now. Mm-hmm. I, I had no idea what all this was about before I went through this, LaShawn. But once I went through it and I made it through it, now I know all about it. Now I have empathy off the charts for everything anybody might be going through. And that's when I started up my my foundation called Your Gift of Life Foundation, which is reminding people that this gift of life is truly a precious, precious gift. And, And we shouldn't tarnish it. We shouldn't discount it. We shouldn't throw it away. We have to be able to make sure that we cherish every single day. And so it's a reminder to me. It's a reminder to everybody else out there. The foundation kind of acts as a platform for me to be able to speak to groups and mainly students. And so that's how this next phase of my life began. And, And I told myself, this is my new chapter of life, to be a voice and advocate for mental health awareness and suicide prevention, working with my foundation and reaching out to others to let them know they can make it through too. So a few things I want to unpack there. First, you know, you had the understanding to immediately put a support system in place, right? So that's obviously super and critical. Why do you think there is so much stigma around mental health, uh, especially in communities of color, but in general about, you know, folks understanding what it takes to get the proper support structure? And and how do you think we can start to change that? Well, I I think historically, and, and like myself included, I didn't know much about mental health issues and challenges until I actually went through it. You know, when we think about mental health, we think about that fellow walking down the street, talking to himself or, or swatting at flies that aren't there and just, you know, out there, just out of his mind. Mm-hmm. But mental health comes in, in, in all kinds of degrees of severity and communities of color, our community, black communities especially, you know, we all have that, that crazy uncle uh, that we keep up in the upstairs room that we don't let anybody interact with and we don't talk about. You know, we've all had that mm-hmm. person. And right. And then we use cutting words sometimes towards each other, like, you crazy, you crazy. And mm-hmm. that just further drives that stigma into you of saying, whoa, I better not act crazy. I better not let anybody know I'm feeling like I need help or I'm feeling like I might hurt myself. So we don't talk about it. And that's a big, big problem in our community. And that's one of the reasons that I speak out, because here I am, a uh, larger-than-life man, taller-than-life man, African-American man, big, strong, tough guy. And I let people see me cry. I let people know my story. And I encourage all of our brothers and sisters out there to say, hey, you know, James made it through. And he's not afraid to share his story. I'm going to make it through, too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, some, I mean, and we find this across all walks of life, uh, people who have various le- levels of success or different, you know, kind of aspirations. But regardless, you know, we see people who carry a lot of weight on their shoulders when 
their expectations don't necessarily align with their perceived reality. And then there's other folks who are just going with the flow. They're constantly adjusting their expectations. Two questions, you know, which bucket are you in? Maybe not always in one. And do you think that impacts the way we have to deal with some of our personal issues? Well, I think I, I played in both buckets. At, during my basketball, my professional basketball career, I had a terrific income. I had the ability to help out and take care of my family, you know, uh, buying homes and cars and paying bills. And I, I just took that responsibility on willingly because I could. This is family. And, um, you know, so I played that. I didn't feel any undue stress or any undue resentment about doing anything like that. It's just what I felt was the right thing to do. But I think a lot of times men in our communities, in our families, we tend to suffer in silence. Uh, you know, we may not be happy about the burden that we're carrying and the family's demanding on us. It's, it's the role that we historically and traditionally play, being the breadwinner, you know, always being employed, gainfully employed, having enough money to take the family for a little vacation, little extra treats here and there. But when you can't do that, it, it starts playing on you. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so I, I think that we just have to realize that, you know, we can do what we can do, but it's most important to let others know when we start struggling with things. I've always been a pretty happy-go-lucky guy and go with the flow of things and adjust as I go. But, you know, the life events I described to you were coming at me one after another after another. You know, we all expect a parent to pass on, but the parent and then a couple months later, your wife leaves and your stepson leaves and your business fails and you, you go into bankruptcy and you have another major surgery coming up. I mean, these things are enough to break anybody. Yeah, it's heavy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... You know, now that, you know, you're on the other side of, of that particular experience, when you, you know, to your point, you can be more empathetic. You can really understand what, you know, some folks are going through. How do you align your willingness to go invest and help people be better for themselves while some of those folks may not be ready to listen? They may not be ready to put that work in. They may not be, you know, they may not want to be vulnerable enough to open up and, and have that conversation. How do, you, how do you tackle that that part of it? Well, you know, I think if you can just make a, a small bit of difference, it's like planting a field of uh, crops, you know. You put your seeds out there and most of them are going to cultivate into something, but a lot of them won't. A lot of them won't germinate from the beginning. And when I go and speak to a group of, uh, of people, uh, and I use my example of speaking to middle school and high school kids, because so many of them are really struggling with mental health issues. I might speak to a group of 500 kids in an assembly, pre-COVID, of course, and um, at the end, five or six of them will come up to me. These are 12, 13, 14-year-olds, and they'll mm -hmm. pull me aside and they'll tell me, I really enjoyed your story, and I'm suicidal right now. I don't mm -hmm. know how I'm going to make it through the night. I don't want to go home. You know, I can't sleep. And they really, really struggle with these kind of things. And so 
we just have to be more compassionate as a people and understanding and, and non non judgmental just to say hey i'm here to listen i'm here to you know support in any which way that you want me to be so that's how i approach it i know i can't hit everybody but I think if people remember just uh, one or two little items I talk about when I tell my story, they can reflect back and say, wow, yeah, that, that James, he came and told us that, you know, his life was totally upside down and he was about ready to pull the trigger on life or you know, pull the plug on it. And now I'm there. And let, right. me, let me recall what he said and how he made it through. He got medical help. He got prescription medication. He got behavioral health counselors. He had a small, intimate support group around him. And that's how he made it through. Yeah. I mean, it takes bravery, right, for a 12, 13-year-old to uh, say those things out loud, right, uh, to someone they're just meeting. So that's that's something to applaud within itself just to make sure, to your point, we're creating that environment that folks feel comfortable enough to have the conversation. That's exactly right. And they can't have that conversation with their parents for whatever reason, but they see me up on the stage crying and telling my story. They're crying. They're crying up in their seats. They can't wait to get down and tell me that, hey, I feel just like you do, and I don't know mm-hmm. how to make it. This past week, I was down at uh, uh, JBLM, Joint Base Lewis-McChord. September is National Suicide Prevention Month, so they want me to come in as a keynote speaker to their big event they're having for all the enlisted service people there. And they say they have a tremendous, tremendous problem with service people who are really having mental issues and mental challenges. They say, especially the men, the men tend to tuck it all away, get through their basic training and get through all the, you know, the grunt and the gruel of becoming an enlisted service person. And then all of a sudden these things manifest once they're on the other side of that, once they're in their bunkers by themselves, once mm-hmm. they're out, out in the field trying to train, all these things start coming back and haunting them. And this is what they're dealing with. And so... They want me to come down, and I will go down in September and talk to these enlisted folks and let them know that, you know, there's always hope. There's always a tomorrow, even though, even when you can't see it, even when yeah. you can't feel it. It's, it's there. You just have to push yourself and grunt yourself through. Just like you grunted your way through military basic training, you have to grunt yourself through the next 24 hours and then the next 24 after that. Yeah. For that particular community is, and, and I'm sure it's it's a combination of things, but is it the training that they're going through that's creating this, or is that training kind of unpacking other things that have gone on in their life and, and it just all comes uh, becomes too much for them to feel like they can manage? The officials I spoke to said a lot of them are bringing all this with them from their teen years, from their early adult years, you know. A lot of them join the military for particular reasons and get away from home, get a chance to start over, make amends for past misdeeds or whatever. And that's the type that the military draws in a lot of the time and gives them that structure that they didn't really have previously. But they tuck away any mental challenges that they might be going through, depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts. And then when they get in the military, they're afraid to tell anybody about it because if you are having suicidal thoughts or homicidal thoughts, and now you're being equipped with a, a piece of arms, 
that's going to be taken away from you pretty quickly. And so mm-hmm. they're, they're deathly afraid of letting anybody know. So we're trying to create an atmosphere, conductive, supportive atmosphere, where they can feel okay to tell people they're having these thoughts without their whole military career going down the drain. Yeah. For those types of groups, you know, again, there's all these things around mindset that we have to put ourselves in to embrace that work. And for other communities, there's an extra layer of work that has to come about on the financial side, right? So you talked about some of the professional help, you know, whether it's the appropriate prescription medicine or seeing the right types of specialists to kind of help folks through their journey. What's your take on someone who is, you know, maybe they're in the streets or they're in a home where there's maybe they don't even have healthcare benefits, right? And there may be programs they don't know about, but but how do you how do you help those folks feel like that's not hopeless where they would think, well, yeah, sure, maybe there's something out there, but but how would I pay for it? You know, who do I talk to? How do you how do you help people sequence that that train of decisions? This is where the awareness and educational part comes in, educating folks that resources are available. Since I've told my story over the last couple of years, I've joined the uh, the board of NAMI, NAMI Seattle. NAMI is the National Alliance for Mental Illness. I'm joining the board for several other mental health agencies around Seattle and Puget Sound area. They have resources that are available that are basically you know, free of charge. You just have to come and ask or, or show up and they can get you the resources, whether it's housing or a little bit of financial assistance or medications or, you know, anything that you need. But, you know, dealing with our homeless population here in Seattle, which has grown exponentially through the last COVID year of 2020, they're estimating roughly 30 to 40 percent of them are having serious mental issues. And so I believe in you have to have the intervention. You have to go up and actually talk to the folks and ask them what's going on and what do you need and how can we help you? Uh, Because they're not coming to you. They're not going to come to you. You have to go to them. And that's the best approach to handle those kind of things. Now, that makes sense. Before we wrap, uh, a couple things I wanted to hit on. Number one, you know, what's your advice to give to other folks who are looking to better manage their mental health. And to your point, you know, we can be kind of, I don't know if spectrum is the right label, but um, kind of various stages of, of that journey. So uh, folks who may need, you know, to really dive in and embrace and put together a whole end-to-end, you know, approach versus others who just need to keep an eye on how we're, you know, moving through our lives. You know, what's your advice on, on how people need to get started? I think we need to... Um make a more concerted effort to build and maintain personal relationships. We're living in a very technological infused society now. The last 20 years, everybody has iPhones, iPads, computers. This COVID year 2020 did not help isolating all of us into these webinars and Zoom videos and things. You have to have somebody in your life that you feel comfortable with and talking to, no matter what the subject is. That person needs to be as judgmental, as non-judgmental as possible, and be a listening ear and a supportive shoulder for you to go to and talk to. I have those with my group still that I put in place. And this is one of the issues that, that are 
students are dealing with, they, they've all grown up with iPhones in their hands and they think that iPhone is their best friend, depending on how many likes they get on social media mm. and, and who's posting what. But that iPhone cannot help you at two in the morning when you can't sleep and your mind is racing towards suicidal ideations. When I was growing up as a kid, I always had a best friend kid, and we'd ride our little bicycles, and we'd look up at the at the fluffy clouds in the sky, and we'd dream about what we want to be or talk about the future. Kids don't get a chance to do that anymore. And so I think it really comes down to making a concerted effort to to build and maintain personal relationships again. One thing that really helped me, LaShawn, was – for years, all through my 20s and 30s and 40s, I was, I was a big letter writer and greeting cards and all these things. Then I got away from it for the last 10 years due to technology. Mm-hmm. But the last three or four years, I got back into writing Christmas cards and sending those out uh, as I used to. A nice little Christmas letter, but also writing something in the card. And I do this for you know two or 300 friends of mine around the country and take the time to lick every envelope, put a stamp on it. It's my handwriting. And it helps me make a more personal connection all over again. Because for years, I just got into sending a little emoji or a, uh, you know, an email or a text message saying, happy, mm-hmm. Merry, Merry Christmas. No, I take the time. And so something simple like that really helps to Bring that human connection back into your life. And I I would advise everybody to get back and to just take in the time, slow down, pull yourself away from all this technology and be real, be people all over again. Absolutely. Tell me, you mentioned the word dreams. What are your dreams and aspirations for for your organization and, and where can people find out more about it if they want to support? Thank you. Well, you know, like I said, it gives me the platform. Once once we're out of this shutdown and we're able to travel the country again and gather in large assemblies and groups, I want to resume that kind of work again and just go and visit schools all over the country. For instance, here in the state of Washington, we lose two students every single day to suicide. Two a day. Wow. Goodness. Uh, and that's a, we're a small state compared to Texas or California and New York and all these other, you know, 20, 30, 40 million people. Mm-hmm. You can imagine they're losing 10 or 20 kids a day. And so, and these are kids between the age of eight and 18. I've heard of eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds taking their lives. And what in the world would make that happen? I mean, they haven't even begun to live life yet, but there's some serious problems going on. So my foundation really is there to... When people call and contact me, I'm able to put them into the right direction for the resources that they need to really help them through the situation. I'm also a sounding board. So many people call me and email me, let me know what they're going through, what their stories are, because they've heard my story. And so they feel comfortable in divulging all this to me for probably the first time or the only person in their lives that they can talk to because they know I understand. And so Mm -hmm. that's one of the main functions to provide a platform for me to get my speaking engagements back together again. But also one of the beneficiaries of the monies we raise with our foundation will be going towards providing scholarships to students of color going into the mental health professions. Mental health professions lack diversity. 
we have only less than 3% that are mental health professionals of color around the country. And so our communities of color are missing. I had a problem with it too when I had my behavioral health counselor. She was a, a young Caucasian girl or a woman sitting across the table from me, you know, mid-20s, early, early, early 30s, had no idea how to relate to me culturally or ethnically or, or even gender-wise as a, as a full-grown man. Right. She had no idea what to tell me what to do except go home and count sheep at night and try to get to sleep. <laughs> you know, and so, and so we need people who can sit across that desk that look like us, that understand us and understand our culture because it's part of their culture. I want my foundation to be able to support and sponsor and provide scholarships to every kid of color who's coming through and going on into a degree in mental health therapy. So that's the big, big payback that I want to do over the next 10, 20 years as I do this work here. I love it. And where can um, folks find you online or, or appropriately? Yes, thank you. Uh, our website is yourgiftoflife.org. And it's right out there. We've got a lot of information up there. I keep it updated periodically to make sure everybody knows what we're doing, what I'm doing. And uh, so yourgiftoflife.org. Excellent. Last question for you, you know, in, in spite of all the polarization we have, you know, in the media and other types of places, people like you, organizations like this are making a change. You know, what's your greatest hope? Wow, that we can all come together again and just really be supportive and encouraging in a positive way. Our society has gotten so partisan, so bickering, so negative, so judgmental. A lot of it due to social media uh, platforms that people thrive on. And that, that's my greatest hope is that, you know, we can once, once again come together as a society, as a community, and truly love each other the way that I grew up in a loving community of loving each other. I'm doing my best to work in those regards to help that out. I have one other thing I'm going to add, if you don't mind. Absolutely. My next chapter, in addition to this chapter that's going on, is I've thrown my hat into the political ring to run for the office of mayor of Seattle this year. Mm -hmm. That in itself is an astonishing story because just in 2018, two years ago, I was really, really struggling and at my at the end of my rope, literally and figuratively. And to come back and bounce back to solid ground, you know, a solid mindset, physically I feel much better. And to say, hey, I'm, I'm good to go now. You know, God saw me through. And, uh, you know, I like to always refer back to the book of Esther where God said, hey, I have prepared you for a time such as this. And that's what I feel God has done with me. He's prepared me. So we are off and running with our campaign now teamdonaldson.org. You can find it out there. Uh, you'll see all the political stuff start up in the next couple of months. Mental health will be part of my platform because we want to show that I understand and I'm very compassionate. I'm very empathetic for all of our homeless brothers and sisters out there who need help. And we're going to devise programs and plans and housing to help them get off the streets and back on their feet again. Excellent. Well, 
Thanks for sharing those resources. Uh, I hope folks uh, kind of track you uh, during the uh, progress on the campaign and best of wishes there. Thank and uh, James, just more broadly, thank you again for joining us today, sharing your story, much needed and fantastic to listen to. Thank you so much, Lasan. It's It's been a real pleasure, you know, and I can't tell my story without getting emotional. It's just the way it is, you know, uh, but it reminds me how real it was what I went through. You know, it wasn't just a little overnight thing. It was a 12 month thing. And I was that close. You know, I have a, I have a book out as well, Celebrating Your Gift of Life uh, on CelebratingYourGiftOfLife.com. And it tells my story. It gives solutions and strategies to help people through these very difficult times. But I can't get through it without without getting emotional because it still is so real. And I just think it's God's reminder to me that he brought me through and he's using me in this way now. Absolutely. And I think that's part of the reason people, you know, connect so deeply with you and your journey. Mm, Thank you. I really appreciate that. And uh, I got a lot of work to do and, uh, (laughs) but I'm good to go now. I'm good to go. I I love the energy and the attitude. Well, Thanks to everyone who joined us today with our conversation with James. Hope each of you enjoyed your time. Please leave a great review wherever you listen to our show. I'm LaShawn. Thanks again. And remember, dream big, stay curious, and always share your true voice. See you next time. This is True Voice.